Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast, brought to you by the World Media Group, and I'm Belinda Barker, the Chief Executive. Today, we're talking to one of the industry's great innovators. She's had a stellar career and is probably one of the youngest CMOs of a major brand, a position she has achieved through bravery and innovation, and very much an individual style. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Rupert Turnbull, European Sales Director for Fortune Magazine. Welcome, Rupert. Thank you, Belinda. Um, and so today we are very excited uh, to be talking to Ellie Norman. Um, Ellie Norman is the CMO of Formula One. Um, and she joined Formula One in 2018. And actually at the time, uh, just, just post-Bernie, um, this was a... Uh, an unusual appointment, a very non-traditional appointment. Uh, so, you know, Ellie is young, female, dynamic. Not she didn't go to uh, to university; went straight into the workplace. Um, and of course, it's a you know, it was a kind of very, I suppose, macho environment. Um, and Ellie's actually recently been promoted to the senior leadership team, reporting to the CEO. So, you know, my first question. Uh, to you, Ellie, is, you know, this is an environment post-Bernie. I mean, Bernie was famously, he didn't believe in marketing. Um, and, you know, yet you've been appointed, you're, you've got to create a marketing strategy in this environment and you've got to get board buy-in. So my first question to you is how? How did you do it? Well, firstly, Rupert and Belinda, great to kind of join you today. Um, the journey actually started in 2017. Um, Liberty Media acquired Formula One from Bernie, um, sort of at the very, very beginning of 2017. Um, and I then sort of moved from Virgin Media to sort of Formula One. And um, I've always kind of loved challenge. Um, and by my very nature, I'm sort of very curious, quite inquisitive, um, and very open to sort of change and taking sort of risks. So for me, life is a series of risks, and it's actually just always looking at where is there opportunity or a sort of half glass full situation. And um, you know, as you say, it's true. I wasn't within a sports world. Um, I'd come from a sort of non-traditional kind of background, but I have um, developed and built up a sort of relevant skill set and experience across kind of automotive and sort of media and entertainment sort of over my um, career to date. And so for me, it was just a very exciting sort of opportunity to actually enter into a business which has a phenomenal brand awareness. I don't think there are many people on the planet that have not heard about Formula One. And that was so appealing because the flip side of that is knowing just how much work and opportunity there was to do. Um, and when I sort of um, joined uh, Formula One, I was sort of employee number one within sort of marketing. Um, and to be working for a brand with that recognition um, and to have a blank sheet of paper to create a team and a structure from the ground up and to be able to put everything in place was really, really re rewarding. 
And it's almost, you know, being quite clear about what is it that you want to achieve um, and just being sort of quite clear about what are the some things you need to have in place to do that, but at the same time, just be very prepared that more often than not, nothing goes to plan um, and you need a great team of people around you um, that all want to travel in the same direction with you. Well, I, and you've, I mean, you know, from a, an outsider's perspective, it's been very successful and you've driven um, a younger audience um, into Formula One and actually more women into Formula One as well. Um, and, you know, while at the same time somehow not alienating your kind of core fan base. Um, can you talk a bit about how you've achieved that? Yeah, I think one of the first things we um, sort of did was we started with um, sort of research. And it's it's fair to say, and we should sort of acknowledge that what Bernie built was a phenomenal business. Um, and he sort of pretty much did that single-handedly. Um, but by the time that Liberty Media acquired it in 2017, it was, I think, fair to say didn't have an awful lot of structure in place in terms of the fact there was no strategy, no research, no marketing, no digital, um, and it was built around the sort of core revenue streams. And so the first thing we did to really sort of face into how do we grow Formula One um, fan base, and our sort of mission is to really um, unleash the greatest racing spectacle on the planet and to really sort of take it from a niche sport into far broader appeal across the world. And so we started, as I said, with this research piece, which was um, working with Wyden and Kennedy and Flamingo. Um, and it was really to sort of understand across the world, so that's kind of UK, Europe, North America, South America, and Asia, what do people feel about Formula One? What are the associations? What are the triggers, the barriers, the perceptions? <clears throat> And this gave us a really, really clear view as to where are the areas that we need to kind of focus on? What is it that fans want and expect from Formula One? And actually then very much to begin with, from a brand perspective, how do we start to address those? And some of the sort of areas, or for example, we called them our sort of um, our, our stars, was to revel in the racing, um, Formula One is an incredibly visceral sport. And yet when you actually look at these sort of numbers, the fan base is just over half a billion fans um, across the world. But we'll have maybe four million fans will attend a race each year. And so how do we revel in the racing and really bring to life the visceral elements and the emotion of the sport um, and be excited about our sport? Um, number two was very much about breaking down borders. So for a long, long period of time, um, Formula One had built up the perception of being inaccessible um, and elitist. And there's a fine balance for us in maintaining the um, aspiration and the mystique of Formula One, which are some of our kind of cornerstones that really sort of make up our brand value. But at the same time, let people into our world using digital touch points um, and so with that there's obviously been a number of different sort of things launched to really sort of support that and that ranges from how do we better serve a core avid fan with um, social media um, highlights kind of news clips on YouTube 
um, all the way through to launching a direct consumer streaming service, right the way through to um, esports for a new audience, uh, fantasy, um, podcasts, and much more sort of um, entertainment-driven formats so that we can really sort of reach a fan that is number 10 on I love the sport, I just want to understand everything there is about it, the data, the strategy, right the way through to some of um, the newer fans on their journey um, and potentially a sort of younger audience that wants to engage through passion points of gaming, music and fashion. Um, And so that sort of piece of research really did set up very much the sort of three-year journey that we've been on to date with how do we start to sort of address that. And one of the sort of early um, things we did off the back of the research was to rebrand the sport, which was obviously the first time after, I think, 24 years at the end of the uh, 2017 season in sort of Abu Dhabi. Um, And that was very much thinking about having a very um, obvious sign that this is a sport that is going through sort of a transition um, and also sort of being very aware as to where are we going to live and show up within a media landscape and the need for that logo to be able to be sort of uh, flexing, adapting to different environments that it's in. Yeah, I can see, I mean, you actually mentioned um, esports there because... Well, I mean, we've we've now been sort of halfway through this podcast, and it's August twenty twenty. We haven't mentioned the c word. So, I mean, but one of one of COVID's uh, effects, I suppose, is that you've been doing a lot more. Well, you've been doing virtual races, um, which I think they've been. I mean, you might tell me different, but they they look like they've been very successful. And yeah, they've been phenomenally good. Has that meant what is the what's the benefit of that in terms of long term? the kind of relationship that the drivers and you as a brand have with your fans? Has that been a, one of the benefits? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been particularly difficult for, for everyone, um, both at, from a sort of commercial perspective, but sort of um, just personally as well. And um, we sort of, we cancelled our first race when we were in sort of Australia. Um, and pardon the pun, but the wheels fell off the bus pretty quickly over what seems to be that one weekend in March, 13th, 14th and 15th of March, where pretty much every sport had a live event cancelled over that weekend. And, um, you know, we, I think one of the fantastic things about Formula One is it's made up of incredible engineers and people looking to iterate and to find gains and better performance and solutions to problems. Um, And actually, as a result of that, I think we sort of reacted very, very quickly um, in a couple of different areas. I think the first area that um, I think I feel sort of particularly um, sort of proud proud about as a sport is how the seven based UK teams came together. Uh, very, very quickly um, and worked with a government um, coalition group to respond to the requirements for ventilators and breathing aids. And the speed at which Formula One as an industry was able to reverse engineer breathing aids in 100 hours and manufacture 10,000 units through to 
having competing teams who it's fair to say, we'll get, I'll go so far as to say, hate each other when they're on track, to standing next to each other in each other's factory, working together again on sort of open source ventilator diagrams and again producing 10,000 units in two weeks is a fairly phenomenal feat. Um, and I think just goes to show how inside of Formula One, it's much more than just the sort of racing and actually what fundamentally drives it is um, technology and innovation. And actually the racetrack is the lab at which to accelerate kind of progress. And to, to see that benefit on society um, was hugely rewarding. And the second thing I think that we did whilst that was happening was um, we always talk about being fan first and welcoming. And without having a race schedule um, and not knowing if and when racing was going to come back in 2020, very, very quickly we turned our attention to how do we continue to serve our fan? Um, and the... Uh, there's a guy in our digital team called Julian Tan who sort of leads all of our esports. And very quickly, we were able to get up and running a virtual Grand Prix series. Um, we worked with clearly the teams, um, and it was amazing to have so many Formula One drivers want to participate in the virtual Grand Prix. You saw them in their homes, um, their true characters coming to life, the banter between them. Um, and it, it gave us the ability to invite other sports people in to join them in a driving seat, to be racing alongside fans, and to actually put on an incredibly sort of entertaining show. And I think in the broader context, the world was going through COVID at different stages. So for some, um, it provided a very welcome um, sort of respite and relief um, and that source of entertainment. Um, and, you know, for sort of others, whilst we're all being asked to stay home, it kept people feeling safe um, because we, there was something there that could sort of entertain um, and kind of bring people together. And so people found it incredibly engaging because they had a sense of sort of purpose, I suppose, that they could tune in, um, watch their drivers engage in conversation with the drivers via the sort of live uh, Twitches, live Q&A sessions. Um, and so that was incredibly powerful. And at the same time, it was important way for us to maintain salience and a sense of kind of consistency that we were having these virtual Grand Prix when we would have sort of normally been racing. Um, and I think over the period that we ran our virtual races, we had 34 million streams. Um, which is, is pretty sort of phenomenal um, within the sort of context. That's incredible. I hear also, I heard you uh, say before that you're gonna ne the next step is putting fans in haptic suits and giving them the full driver experience. Is that, is that actually a possibility? Yeah. So um, we don't have um, fans yet. We're back racing, which is, uh, it feels absolutely brilliant. Um, and when we have Paddock Club, which is our sort of hospitality, we actually have one activation um, up in the Paddock Club where you do put on a haptic suit and you sit within the sort of driver seat sim and you feel everything that an F1 driver will feel. It's amazing because the sensation, the G-force is on you um, 
I think just starts to bring to life how physical the sport is. And so often now with the way that the cars are, um, we have a halo, the drivers are sat quite low, which is the right thing for sort of safety. But compared to sort of watching the racing when it first started in 1950, it's very, very different. And actually, the aspect that was incredibly powerful from the virtual Grand Prix series was the ability to see the driver's expression without wearing helmets. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the aspects that came from that early research is the importance of drivers as heroes and bringing to life the sense that Formula One is um, essentially opposing forces working in harmony together. So it's all about control and chaos, or actually how can human performance almost push past the limits of physics. Um, and that's what the sort of the Grand Prix, virtual Grand Prix really brought, the sort of human element of the sport to life. I could listen to all, all things Formula One uh, all, all, all day, but I really want to take an opportunity to find a little bit more out about um, Ellie Norman and, and your personal journey. Um, I, I looked briefly at your LinkedIn before we started this call and noticed that, that you were head girl at your school, um, which does not surprise me entirely. Um, <laughs> But you then... That was a long time ago, Belinda. <laughs> yes, but you keep personality traits for life. You've always, <laughs> always been a real, you know, go-getter and it was recognised young. Um, but you did, you made that decision about n not going to university and going straight into marketing. Um, and you've you've had a fairly, you know, meteoric career through through that, but... Can you tell us a bit, a little bit more about how you got going and, and what your personal ethos is? Great question. Um, I'm always one for not wanting to follow a crowd. And I genuinely believe there is more than one way to an answer. And um, to never stop if the first path available to you appears to be blocked. Um, and I think certainly when um, I was at school, there was an expectation that everyone would go to university. And um, I think back to my point about genuinely believing there are other ways to achieve things, it just didn't feel particularly kind of a natural thing that I really wanted to do. Um, and I think what drives that is academically and theory-based stuff, I'll kind of do it, but I actually don't enjoy it. What I love is um, learning on the job, asking questions, um, learning from doing something and what would you look to improve, understanding how things work in, in a real sort of life environment. And that could be from... As a kid, even just kind of taking things apart because I want to see how it works to see can you make it kind of better. Um, and there are those sort of elements that I think drove me to make that decision when I was sort of 18 to not sort of go to university. I could have got into university and I could have studied for three years, but I wasn't really sure what I was going to come out with. 
And could I better spend those three years studying at university to um, to go and learn something um, else? And I left school um, after A levels. Um, and at home, we've always always had to have kind of weekend jobs from I know the age of fourteen. And so there was absolutely no way I was allowed to stay at home. Um, so it was a case of you need to go and get a job. Um, and I actually worked for my mum and stepdad's business, um, dental practice, and I was um, receptionist. But the ability to interface with people from all walks of life, whether it's suppliers coming in, patients coming in, you you're in a situation where you have to build rapport quickly with people. So some people, not some, a lot of people hate that experience. And so how do you get the best out of people? And actually it was um, a conversation on reception, which led to my first job. Um, And I think that sense again of life is a series of risks, but you will make, you will make out of it what you want. And being open to change and just going and trying things really got me my first job, um, which was working for a sort of premium toothpaste company, um, Yanina. And I was like, yeah, I'll come and do anything. I just want to sort of learn. And from there, sort of um, chance conversations. And again, just being able to empathize, build rapport very, very quickly with sort of people got me an interview at a um, agency. And from there, I sort of spent five, six years in sort of agency side. And that's where I I genuinely, from starting off, always enjoying spending time with people and understanding and being kind of curious as to what makes people tick was where I really sort of understood much more about the kind of marketing and the advertising world. And um, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to really like love this. I want to spend my sort of career and my time here. and I always, always look back very fondly on those agency days because you are there to service your clients and to make your clients' life better and easier and to succeed. Uh, you learn brilliant disciplines agency side. Um, and, and, you know, from there, Honda was one of my sort of clients. And I think, again, through good relationships um, and a sort of can-do attitude, when my day-to-day client left Honda, the CMO asked if I would second to Honda to cover his role for six months. Um, and I left Honda after eight years. So that transition then into kind of client side was fascinating because you're exposed to so much more that you just don't appreciate agency side. And um, it's only now when I kind of look back and when your agency side you are, it's your, it's your whole world, but quite often it might be sort of 10, 15% of everything your client is doing. Um, and just understanding some of the levers from the automotive side on these sort of commercials, and it could be everything from, you know, just-in-time manufacturing, the sort of logistics, the um, life cycles on kind of products, how dealer franchises kind of operated, just exposed me to sort of so much more and to do that on a sort of regional basis across Europe, Europe, Middle East, Africa and Russia just kind of furthered my sort of um, inquisitiveness around different cultures 
Um, and again, just trying to find simple solutions when there are so many differences that exist between people and cultures. And, um, you know, often that's elevating it up into very simple human truths that kind of resonate with sort of everyone, no matter whether you drive a left-hand drive car or a right-hand drive car. Um, so every time I've sort of been quite conscious about, am I starting to feel kind of comfortable? And there's something I think quite um, potent about feeling uncomfortable um, because you are conscious that you don't know everything. And so, you know, your thirst for learning and being curious to find out more for me is still in that sort of overdrive. Um, and, and that I really, really sort of like. So from Honda, um, I worked never directly for, but I worked um, with a guy there called Jeff Dodds, who was the CMO at Virgin Media. And a role came up in Virgin Media for head of um, advertising um, at the time. And he got in touch, say, there's a role here. I think um, it would really suit you. Do you want to sort of come in um, for an interview? And um, again, that sort of um, knowing that it's a huge brand, um, lots of kind of competition for a role like that. Um, I wanted my sort of CV to really stand out um, because I would report into the brand director, brand and marketing director, not Jeff, the CMO. So I actually um, did my sort of research and bought a cookbook um so um bear with me on this <laughs> okay um and knew that they were really sort of interested in Heston Blumenthal as a chef so I bought a Heston Blumenthal cookbook and one of the recipes is based on Alice in Wonderland and stopping time um and so I actually wrote a hand wrote a letter put my CV on the page of the Alice in Wonderland to stop time and essentially asked them to stop time to read my CV. So recognizing that I don't have what many sort of um, job roles will ask for, which is like degree educated. I'm always trying to just be sort of creative as to how else are you going to stand out and where are their benefits from standing out and doing things differently that can help a brand. And, uh, you know, often I'll be really drawn to challenger brands because you come with the ability to change things and to do something different because nothing's kind of gone before. You don't follow the norm. Um, you're not maintaining a number one position. And so actually the agility um, is always so appealing to me because you're kind of crafting your own way and your own direction. Um, so I loved Virgin Media because I learned about all of the sort of telco and the entertainment space, and it's fiercely competitive and so different to automotive. And you had the ability to truly learn about a single kind of country PNL. And I didn't have that at Honda in this kind of regional role. Um, and I was there for five years at Virgin Media. Um, and again, was fortunate enough to have a phone call from um, a guy called Sean Bratches, who was the who came in under Liberty Media as the managing director of commercial operations, and he'd been given my name by Wyden and Kennedy, who was the agency I worked with during my eight years at Honda, um, and we met for a, a coffee 
very early one uh, morning at the beginning of uh, 2017 um, before I was actually, my husband and I were going on holiday. So I was like, I'm going for a coffee and then we'll go to the airport. So I had a great coffee with him, I think 45 minutes um, coffee. And um, sorry? Did you make the plane? Of course. Like military operation, my OCD planning. Um, I think I met him at 7 a.m., I had like an 11 a.m. flight, so it all worked brilliantly. And um, 45 minute coffee, and then he just rang and said, "Where's your head at?" And I was like, "Physically or mentally?" And so again, this opportunity to just try something new um, and continue to sort of push yourself to be curious, to kind of learn and feel energized um, was just too much to resist. You, you make it sound like it's it, your career has almost almost been a kind of a, a series of lucky events, and I think you're doing yourself down by that. I think what what came out of that most most strongly for me was the um, when you were talking about making your own life uncomfortable. I, I, I suspect that that has more to do with. Your, your your success and a series of, of lucky events. Um, is there any one thing or, or person who you feel has had the, 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 the greatest impact on, on the direction of your career? It's, um, I think it's, I, there are a number of people actually, and I'd say it's testament today that um, at every kind of big stage or big block of my career, um, still to this day, I'm good friends with those sort of people. Um, And it started with the first agency I worked with, uh, uh, the owner there, um, a guy called Ian, um, really sort of encouraged and pushed me um, in, in a fantastic way to sort of just get into the detail and to, and to be sort of knowledgeable and, and to speak up. And that was really important because, you know, when you're 18, 18 years old, I left that agency sort of 21 years old. It really helped to kind of mould um, finding your voice, which in front of a client or more senior people, you know, you could quite easily be sitting back. Uh, so he, he's been sort of always very pivotal and. Um, I'll still kind of ring him and get sort of advice and kind of talk stuff through with him. Um, At Honda, um, there was a president who ran Honda UK, a Scottish guy, Ken Keir. And um, there was a period of time where they were in between sort of CMOs. And so I would just go directly to him on any of the sort of advertising or campaign work. And he was phenomenal in the value of gut feel and listening to how a piece of work made you feel. And the only question that he would ever ask me, I'd go and present the campaigns to him. This is the strategy. This is the audience. Here's a proposition. Here's the messaging and stuff. He'd be like, that's fine. No one outside in the real world is ever going to see that. So how does this advert make you feel? And um, the question he'd ask me is, does it make you feel scared? And what that meant was listen to your gut. If you feel 
uncomfortable by this. That's a great thing. By the time this ad is crafted in the marketplace with um, a lower spend than our competitors in automotive, it's going to cut through, number one. Number two, at this early stage within developing advertising, you should not be feeling kind of comfortable because we work with experts in advertising to craft something. And you as a client should never feel 100% kind of comfortable with what this end result is going to look like, you know, 12 months before an ad is going to go live. Um, and I learned so much from that sort of questioning. And I think that's really stayed with me um, throughout my sort of career of having something that feels uncomfortable. If your brand values and your brand DNA are tight and you know exactly who you are and what you stand for, to feel uncomfortable by an execution or something in a pre-production is fantastic. Um, and I've always kind of kept that dear. Um, and then I think, you know, at Virgin Media, um, I worked for a lady called Keris Bright, who's now um, Chief Customer Officer at the BBC. And um, from having predominantly come through sort of a brand creative route, I learned so much in terms of the value of um, science and data with the sort of heart side of marketing. Um, and that really came to life through sort of Virgin Media because it is such a competitive marketplace and your customer cycles and sort of acquisition and churn is just constant. So entirely different um, to an automotive kind of five-year life cycle. Um, and, you know, someone I always kind of look up to and admire has been um, Seal Salah, obviously, who just retired from um, Diageo. Um, and I think what I've really always kind of looked up to Seal is um, the ability to innovate within the sort of drinks category, um, the sort of emphasis and focus on marketing, moving the needle and the sort of measurement and the um, effectiveness side of that. Um, and, you know, I think most recently, just the single-mindedness to use the, the power of Diageo and all of its brands to really sort of drive change. Um, and, you know, that's obviously been with um, sort of empowering women and whether that's through the um, creative agencies making sure there's representation there, but actually brands having the ability to really drive that sort of change and to be true to something um, is something I, I sort of really do um, sort of look up to and admire. Well, I totally believe, uh, agree with you on sale. Hey, listen, Ellie, we've, we've kept you too long. You know, you've got the small matter of running a global brand in a pandemic to get back to. Um, so we'll let you do that. Just one last question before, before you go. Um, I mean, really simple question. What is it? Do you have in, in mind a kind of destination for the brand of Formula One? Is there a, forgive me for this, a checkered flag at which point you, you'll be happy? Did you pre-write that, Rupert? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> um, you know, is there a sort of, you know, a, a point where you'll think, okay, that really is, uh, you know, a job well done where you're totally happy with it? 
Um, my utopia moment will most probably be when I'm no longer in the sport. But I think um, what I'm looking forward to is having been part of a journey to make the sport more accessible and appealing to a broader audience. Um, and I think very relevant to that today, um, and it's in one of our kind of brand values of fan first and always welcoming, is also making sure we have diversity of thought within Formula One, the organization and the teams that actually best represents our global fans from around the world. Um, and, you know, that's something that we know sort of uh, benefits society, it benefits business and sort of everyone. So I think starting to see some of those changes and knowing that I've been at the start of a journey in being able to kind of shape the brand to, um, to announce and to launch We Race As One platform, which is essentially our, uh, our sort of CSR platform for sustainability, diversity and inclusion and community, to me feels we're at the start of a journey where we're putting true purpose into sort of Formula One and we're, we're able to best leverage the power of sports in uniting people and the sort of sheer scale and platform of that. So to look back in, I don't know, 10, 20 years time and to see that sort of diversity of people on the grid, whether it's a sort of female Formula One race driver, um, another kind of black racing driver on the grid, will feel sort of pretty special knowing that I was part of the journey at the very beginning. Well, I've got every confidence you'll achieve that. Ellie, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so much of your time with us today. Um, it, it's probably the hottest day of the year. I understand your village has been completely cut off from all forms of water. Um, so uh, it just you have been incredibly generous. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking to you both. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks.